Welcome to the Grace City Eugene podcast. We exist to help every person in our sphere of influence encounter Christ, experience biblical community, and extend God's kingdom. If we can help you in any way, feel free to reach out to hello at gracecityeugene.com. Here's the podcast. This week, I am going to build off of my previous message on hope. Casey's message kind of came in. We saw that as we're going through this, me- this series, that we didn't really, I didn't, I'll say I, didn't really hit that theme of exile and sin at the beginning like maybe it would have been good to do. So Casey came in, cleaned up my mess like he does. That's why we pay him the big bucks. And now I get to continue off of my hope message this week. <clears throat> so today we're going to talk about humility Humility. Everybody loves to talk about some humility, right? As everybody's looking down and away from me. Um, as we do that, though, <clears throat> I got two things for us. One is scripture before we get into it, and one is just kind of a personal encouragement. <clears throat> Anytime in my life of ministry, I have talked about, taught on, brought up the subject of humility in whatever context it may be, whether it's a small group, whether it's a sermon, whether it's in a leadership context, there's something about that topic and how it postures us to be aligned with God that the enemy doesn't like. And He will twist words. He will cause us to pick out things that maybe we don't like, to take offense, and to be prideful instead of humble, which, you know, makes sense. We're trying to establish humility. And so I just want to encourage you here today. There are going to be sentences and parts of this message that you're going to be like, oh, it's a standalone sentence. Maybe that that doesn't sound right. There's going to be something that convicts you, and you're like, I don't like that. I'm going to withdraw. Please press in. Hear what God is saying and take the entirety of what he's given me to share to you guys with the context that it's shared in. I've found when I listen to sermons and something's trying to do a little surgery on me, a little heart surgery, you know what I'm saying? I can really quickly be like, oh yeah, but he said that and that's wrong. So I'm going to just write off everything else instead of actually marinating and digesting what God is wanting to do in us. So I want to encourage you in that. And then I want to read this scripture for us, which will come up again later, but my prayer is that this will frame our mindsets and our hearts to receive God's word today. Amen? 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 through 26. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. Let's pray. God, thank you for this time. I thank you for this word you've given me. Father, I pray that we would all, myself included, have open hearts, open minds to receive what you would impart to us today through this time. God, we We submit this time to you. We trust your spirit to speak to us. God, I pray that these words would be from you and not me, and that you would change our lives through this time, that we would be one step closer to you and understanding your heart for your people. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. So Daniel's hope, which we talked about last time, 
gave him courage. His hope gave him courage. But it was his remarkable humility that gave him favor in the eyes of his captors. It gave him favor. In order to thrive in Babylon, Daniel needed a strong dose of both. He needed courage and he needed this favor. He needed hope and humility. Now, courage without humility leads to martyrdom, right? Just straight up martyrdom. But humility without courage leads to spinelessness. So without them being together, we don't get the kind of fruit that we want. Together, courage and humility can shake the very foundation of hell, advancing the kingdom of God into the most unlikely of places, even places like Babylon, when they are combined together, when they are working together. But unfortunately, the path of humility is not well-traveled today. I think we could all acknowledge that. This path of humility is rarely traveled. And it's not that it's like the path that has overgrown and we've just kind of forgotten about. Like this path of humility is more like avoided and disdained. Could we agree on that? Like humility is, ah, I don't, I don't know about that. Like people just don't want to go there. It's not something that people aspire to. And especially men, and as we lead our, our families and our, and our kids and whatever other environments that we're called to lead in, like humility is something that is too often rejected because there's a misunderstanding of what biblical community or biblical community, biblical humility is. Unfortunately, I don't think I've ever heard a dad say that he wanted his son or daughter to grow up to be humble. I just really praying that my kid would grow up to be humble, that that's like on the top three or five or 20 list of things you're praying for your child to have. And I think that's because as we think about being humble, there's this weak and mostly negative connotation that comes with it. Like, what does it mean to be humble? And it can often be received as, oh, that's, a, that's weakness. Um, that's a, it's a negative thing that we view in our society. For instance, when we speak of somebody coming from humble beginnings, like we don't mean that as a compliment, right? Like oftentimes we say, oh, they came from really humble beginnings. What you're saying is they came from poverty or they were poor. They, their circumstances were against them. When we talk about living in humble circumstances, it's not an envy. It's not like, oh, I wish I could live in some of those humble circumstances. Like that's, that's just not the way we view it. And our modern-day definitions of humility tend to equate with the word humility with low self-esteem, a soft or pliable disposition, a lack of ambition, a conscious effort to minimize or downplay any of our accomplishments. Like That's often what we can think of what it means to be humble or exercise humility. And if that is how we think about it, it is no wonder... <laughs> that most of us treat humility as some lofty ideal of self-deprecation and something that, like, we understand that we're supposed to be humble, but it's not really appealing, so I'll get to that later, right? It's, it's not something we put on our priority list. But the reality is low self-esteem, a soft and pliable disposition, lack of ambition, a denial of our strengths and our accomplishments have nothing to do with biblical humility, like nothing, 
They have nothing to do with it. They aren't marks of spiritual maturity. They're actually marks of insecurity. And so if we can have a good grasp of what it actually means to walk out humility, to be humble in a biblical sense, they actually become marks, these things, of security in who God is. And so we're going to look today at the kind of humility that Daniel had and the kind that God calls us to have, and that it is something altogether different than what our preconceived notions of being humble or what humility is. So to understand what biblical humility is, we need to clear out some of the most widely held but thoroughly unbiblical ideals or beliefs or definitions, if you will, that have made humility the path that so few people have wanted to travel. Uh, so we're going we're gonna to tackle some of those real quick. The first is humility is not low self-esteem. It's not low self-esteem. It doesn't mean just thinking less of yourself. Biblical humility is not synonymous with low self-esteem. The Bible actually commands us to have an accurate assessment of our strengths and weaknesses. We are not to think more highly of ourselves than we should. We're not to be prideful and arrogant, but we're also not to think more poorly of ourselves. Instead, we are to gauge our gifts, our abilities, our strengths, our weaknesses with sound and sober judgment and have a realistic idea of who we are and how God sees us. It's not just, oh, I'm humble. I'm, I'm so horrible. I'm such a bad person. Oh, you, oh, you like, oh no, that was no good. Like, how would you guys feel if every Sunday I got off the stage and occasionally someone came like, oh, thank you for that word. That was really good. Oh, no, it was crap. I'm sorry. It was trash. Like, that, that was no good. I'm, I'm not. Like, that would be really off-putting, wouldn't it? And it, it would seem that I'm just fishing for compliments and there's actually pride in that self-deprecation. Like, it just, it doesn't work like that. That is not biblical humility. That is insecurity oozing out or flooding out, if you will. Jesus was humble, but he also had a pretty high opinion of himself. What do you mean by that? Well, he claimed to be God, so he had a pretty high opinion of himself. Yet, he was humble, and he walked in humility like no other human has. So there's no way that we can equate humility to low self-esteem. Daniel was not suffering from low self-esteem either. Look at what he actually said about himself and his friends in chapter 1. Verses 3 and 4. Now this is Daniel writing this. This isn't some history book. This is him saying this. He says, Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men without physical defects. Handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning. Well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. Did Daniel suffer from low self-esteem? No. He took an honest, confident assessment of his skills and abilities and how that applied to what God was doing, and he communicated it. He communicated it, and apparently he liked what he saw in the mirror. <clears throat> now, there's no virtue in lack of confidence or of a self-deprecating attitude. If we're handsome and well-qualified like Matt Klein to serve in the king's palace, then we should, we should recognize that. And Jesus expects us <laughs> to know it. You're welcome, Matt. 
He expects us to know our strengths, our qualities, to acknowledge it and to do something with it. We're not to be arrogant and look down on others because of recognizing that, but we're not to just dispel what God has done and how he may be blessing us or others through us. C.S. Lewis said it this way, and I think this sums it all up. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. I'm sure you guys have heard that before in some context, but it's not about thinking less of yourself. It's simply about thinking of yourself less. It's not low self-esteem. The second thing is it's not a lack of ambition. In the same vein, humility doesn't negate ambition. Daniel and his friends were ambitious. Chapter 1, verses 17 through 20, it says this. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azira. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. These guys went through this training, this three-year training, and they graduated at the top of their class. They were ambitious. If they were going to be involved in this, they were going to make the most out of it. Ten times better than all the other magicians, enchanters in the whole kingdom. Daniel 2, 48 and 49 says, Then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all of its wise men. Moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego administrators over the province of Babylon, while Daniel himself remained in the royal court. Daniel even sought to have his friends appointed as administrators over the province. It's the first thing he asked of the king after he was placed in charge of all of Babylon's wise men was that the ambitions of them and making sure that they get the most opportunity they could would be communicated from his place of influence. Daniel and his friends did not lack ambition. That is not what humility looks like. Consider for a moment if John and James, when they came to Jesus with their mom and they asked Jesus to grant them prominent positions in his kingdom. Jesus didn't rebuke them for their ambition or for bringing their mommy along. He rebuked them for their lack of understanding of what it would take to get them there. He didn't say, how dare you ask to be put in some special position? Or why can't you just talk to me like a man? Why are you bringing your mom? He rebuked them for their lack of understanding what it would take to get there. They wanted to be great, and Jesus was fine with that. But he wanted to make sure they understood the path to greatness was a path of humble service. And the path to become first was actually a path of serving others like a slave. A path of being a servant. It's not about lack of ambition. That's not what humility is. And it's not about downplaying our accomplishments. It doesn't mean we never tell anybody about our successes or that anything good that ever happens or that God does in our life or that we partner with God to have some accomplishment that we just keep it like private and we never communicate about it or get to take joy in it. 
Biblical humility is willing to be overlooked, but that is not what it always is. It's not absolutely be overlooked, don't care about any of the accomplishments or anything that God has done in you or through you. It doesn't insist on public honor or acknowledgement, and it doesn't boast on our status or our accomplishments, but it's not the same thing as intentionally trying to hide those things. It, does, it means we don't fight for attention, but we don't run from it either. Because who knows what God has done in you and how he may have used you to do something really cool. And if you don't share that, like you don't get that opportunity to testify to God's goodness and his faithfulness and his working in you. Because when we understand that everything we have is from God, then our accomplishments come from him too. And it's an opportunity to testify to him, not to self. After all, the only reason we know of the great things Daniel did is because he wrote a book to tell us about them. And apparently God was okay with it because he put it in the Bible. So humility is not downplaying or hiding or minimizing accomplishments. That's enough of the it's not this. Let's talk about what it is. First and foremost, humility is serving others. At its core, biblical humility is simply serving others by putting their needs and interests above our own. It's treating others the same way we would treat them if they were somebody important. If they were somebody of high esteem that came into town and we wanted to make sure that everything was taken care of and and that they had honor and respect as we walked them throughout their day, it is treating everybody in a similar way. It doesn't mean we become a doormat. It means we become a servant. Now, I realize it's easy to talk about humbly serving others, but not so easy to do it in real life. Amen? We can talk about it. But doing this is a little more challenging, especially when it comes to serving people we would rather not serve. But that's what biblical humility does. It not only serves those who deserve it, it serves those who don't deserve it. That's why it's called humility. It's not about, oh, they earned this and so I will have some transaction of service with them. It is, even if they don't deserve it, I'm still going to serve them because I didn't deserve it and Jesus came to die for all my junk to make me right with my Savior. And when we live out of that place, that's what humility looks like. Biblical humility doesn't stop with serving those who don't deserve to be served, though. It goes a step further and it even serves God's enemies. It even serves God's enemies. And here's where you start to get uncomfortable. When Jesus washed the feet of the disciples, guess whose feet he washed? Judas. What would Judas do not too long after that? He would betray him. And when he defined the kinds of neighbors we are supposed to love, he included everyone who crosses our path. Friend, foe, even religious heretics. That is the kind of humility Daniel had that he would even serve God's enemies. He served his captives and his wicked masters so well and loyally, in fact, that he kept getting promoted. 
He didn't just get by. Like, dude kept getting promoted. He was getting recognized. He was becoming, like, endeared to these kings. And with every promotion, his influence in Babylon grew greater, eventually leading both King Nebuchadnezzar and King Darius to proclaim Daniel's God as the only true God. Let's read about this. Daniel 4, 37. This is in the closing of chapter 4. Nebuchadnezzar says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven, because everything he does is right, and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Wow. That's, that's King Nebuchadnezzar right there, proclaiming that. And then in response to Daniel surviving the lion's den in Daniel chapter 6, verses 25 through 28, it says this, Then King Darius wrote to all the nations and peoples of every language in all the earth, May you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Daniel served these men. He served their kingdoms. Not at a discount of his faith in God or his obedience to following God, but he served them with humility. And look what the outcome was. Two evil, wicked rulers declaring God as the one true God. That's the goal after all, isn't it? Yet, I'm afraid that if Daniel were to be here in the modern day and do similar things, he'd be pretty harshly criticized, unfortunately. I think many Christians would see him as a spiritual compromiser for associating and serving these folks. He'd be accused of aiding and abetting these evil rulers if he were to do the same thing today. I think one of our problems is that as a people, today we are far more prone to isolate than to infiltrate. We are far more prone to isolate from the darkness than to infiltrate it with the light that Jesus Christ and his Holy Spirit have put within us. We would rather, whether we would communicate it this way or not, shrink back, make sure we're taken care of and protected, than literally storm the gates of hell with the good news of the gospel. More prone to isolate than infiltrate. We keep our personal contact with godless leaders and institutions to a minimum. We try to avoid relationally engaging with them. And when we do engage, it's more likely to be an adversarial confrontation than a conversation conducted in some sort of civil manner. It's no wonder our cultural influence as followers of Jesus is at an all-time low. Because we're isolating instead of infiltrating. <clears throat> If we want to significantly influence our modern-day Babylon, we have to change our tactics. 
We've got to change our tactics. Instead of avoiding or attacking the godless leaders of our day, we need to begin to engage them in the same way Daniel did, by humbly serving whoever God chooses to temporarily place into positions of authority. It's the only way we will earn the right to be heard. Without contact, there can be no impact. How do we plan to make an impact in somebody's life or in this world if we avoid contact with it or them? Yet, since the earliest days of the church, many well-meaning Christians have assumed that civil and friendly relationships with wicked and godless people are simply an implicit endorsement of their sin and values. I can't think of how many blogs, articles, whatever you want, writings that I've seen of people criticizing reputable, well-known pastors and ministers for preaching at somebody's church that they don't agree with their theology or something they've said, or associating themselves with an organization or a leader, and they absolutely cannibalize these leaders because they're they determine they are implicitly endorsing the sins and values of these other people. Now, this is a problem that the Apostle Paul had to address in one of his letters to the Corinthians. They misunderstood his instruction in an earlier letter when he'd instructed them not to associate with those who were sexually immoral, greedy, dishonest in their business dealings, or worshiping false gods. They thought he meant to avoid non-Christians who lived that way, So he wrote again to clarify what he meant. He didn't want them to cut off from non-Christians who lived that way. In that case, they'd have to leave the world, right? Like you can't just cut off from non-Christians that live that way. He actually wanted them to cut off, to distance themselves, to be on guard for self-proclaimed Christians that lived that way. That's what he was warning them of. It makes me wonder, like, why... When a missionary overseas, and we saw this in Sierra Leone, and I've heard many other stories of this, um, a missionary makes relational inroads with a village witch doctor or you know, somebody that is in a spiritually dark leadership position. And it is celebrated, and a picture of that missionary and that witch doctor, if you will, are put up on the fridge, and it's a reminder to pray for them because God's given relational inroads, and let's pray that God does a breakthrough and changes this person's heart. And and we're so quick to put that up on our fridge and pray for them. But if a Christian in the United States befriends, gains influence or relational inroads with a president or a leader that we don't like, we want to see them excommunicated. I can remember people in the church getting irate. When I say the church, I don't mean my church or I just mean the church getting irate that Pastor Rick Warren was taking part in the inauguration ceremony of Barack Obama. People were irate. And I can't even count how many people have been irate with religious leaders' affiliation with either President Donald Trump or President Joe Biden. Like, it's just all over the place. And people will write someone off because of a relational inroad or association that they have with leaders that they don't like or agree with. Why is it fine and commendable on the other side of the ocean, but not here? And this is probably making you a little bit uncomfortable because each of us in here, I'm sure, has opinions about this. 
And that's okay. But we have to ask ourselves that question. Why is it okay, and I would say necessary, and many of us would recognize it as so, across the ocean, but if it happens here, many would equate it with apostasy, being a sellout, a character flaw, inviting a wolf into the pasture, various other things that they would say this is doing. If no agents of godly change have relationship with leadership, how do we expect the grace and mercy of heaven to come down in those areas? Without contact, how can there be impact? If you are an agent of change and an ambassador of the gospel and the best transformative news that humans have ever received, but you don't actually step into the dark with that lightness, how will the darkness ever change? How will it ever change? That doesn't mean we celebrate sin. It doesn't mean we celebrate the brokenness and the, all of the different things that we may be able to identify that don't equate to biblical values about these leaders, but it means that instead of just writing it off, we try to find an opportunity to have impact in those areas instead of isolating from them. Without contact, there can be no impact. The final thing that humility is is it's about persuasion, not warfare. This kind of tags off of what we were just talking about. But Daniel and his friends never treated their captors as enemies or that they were in a war with them. And they happened to be living in the battlefield, if you will. They followed the advice of Jesus long before it was given. And they loved their enemies and did good to them. They did the best they could with what they were entrusted. And we are supposed to do the same thing. Our great assignment that we've been given by Jesus himself is to go into all the world and recruit Jesus followers, to persuade others into believing and repenting and understanding the good news that there is in the gospel for them, teaching them to obey everything that he's taught us. Jesus never told us to create a Christian nation, to impose our standards on non-believers, or to preserve a particular culture. He told us to go recruit Jesus' followers to the ends of the earth and teach them to obey everything that he has taught us. He told us to win over the lost. He told us to win over the lost. And if you trade the framework of persuasion over for one that's focused on warfare, then you will forget the circumstances that the New Testament church was birthed in. Because the New Testament church was not birthed in a Christian nation. It was not birthed in a comfortable culture for Jesus' followers. It was quite the opposite. And if you adopt the warfare model, you focus on the wrong enemy. You focus on the wrong enemy. You see, non-Christians are not the enemy. They are the victims of the enemy. And they need to be rescued, not wiped out. Imagine if we took that to heart as we engage in our neighborhoods, workplaces, with that boss we dislike, with that leader that we disagree with. That these people aren't the enemy. They're the victims of the enemy. They're being lied to. They're being deceived. They're being held captive. And they need rescued. Not obliterated. Not wiped out. The Apostle Paul spelled out the response we're supposed to have toward those who live like hell on earth and actively advance the cause of the enemy. 
And it's not what many would expect. And it's what we started off the service with. 2 Timothy 24 through 26. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone. Able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. And that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. Note that Paul is speaking about people here who are doing the will of the devil. He's not talking about people that are just in a parade celebrating it. He's talking about the people leading the parade. The people that are on the front lines of advancing a demonic agenda. And this is how he is telling followers of Jesus, the early church, to interact with and view these folks. The goal of our interaction is not to see God pour out his judgment upon these people. It's to see him pour out his grace and his mercy, granting them repentance and the knowledge of truth. It says that they would come to their senses that would come to knowledge of the truth. In other words, our primary goal is persuasion, not warfare. It's persuasion. Also notice the specific actions we're called to take. We're not to argue or quarrel. We must be kind to everyone. And yes, that means everyone. No exceptions. We can't go back to the Greek and find that it actually says almost everyone. No, it says everyone. Everyone. We must also prepare to teach and explain the truth, but it must be done gently, humbly, and without resentment. The Apostle Peter put it this way, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with goodness and respect. And honestly, I believe it's in this that we miss the mark. The more Babylon-like our culture becomes, the more resentment that builds up. And that resentment builds up and it results in bitterness, slander, rumor spreading, and harsh critiques that nobody would actually deem kind and gentle rebukes. Many excuse their words by pointing to Jesus' harsh rebukes of the Pharisees. Right? And it's like, well, I can have that rebuke because look at how Jesus spoke to and about the Pharisees, calling them whitewashed tombs and how he you know, interacted with religious leaders of his day, but they missed the point. Because Jesus didn't rail on the sinners of the day, he pursued them. It was the religious hypocrites who were attempting to keep the sinners at bay that he blasted, that he came against, that he was harsh to. The religious hypocrites that were trying to keep the sinners away from the good news. King Nebuchadnezzar was as evil as they come. He served a demonic God. He trashed Jerusalem and God's temple. He mocked God. He was unreasonable, hot-headed, vain, murderous, and cruel. Yet every interaction that Daniel had with him was respectful and gracious. He understood that every time we treat God's enemies as our enemies, we harden their hearts and we build up a wall that makes repentance all the more unlikely. And Daniel was assigned to Babylon. It was his assignment. Joseph was placed in Egypt. The early Christians were asked to serve God in Rome. And we've been assigned to this time and this place. 
And our task is not cryptic or ambiguous. There's no guesswork in what our task, what our mission, what our job is in all of this. We are to proclaim the gospel to lost people in the hope that they will repent and bow down before Jesus as their Lord and Savior. That's the goal. It's not, hey, we need to make sure we get our theology right so that we can avoid judgment when all those heathens get judged. Like, no, not at all. It should be our heart and posture that everyone we interact with that is far from God would come to their senses, that we would be kind, that we would be able to preach, that they would be overcome by the grace and mercy of a loving God who wants them and his family. It's a heart posture. Our goal is to win them over, not wipe them out. We will never be able to persuade anybody if our initial response to those held captive to do the enemy's will remains one of anger and resentment and disrespect and scorn. We can't just chuck verbal hand grenades in the name of Jesus and claim that we're loving our enemies. That just doesn't fly. No one will believe us that we actually live this biblical life and that we actually are walking out humility and actually believe that what Jesus has done on the cross is good news for everybody because what we're communicating is great news for us, but not for you because you're too far gone. All the time forgetting how far gone we once were. Worship team, you can come back up. We need to understand that biblical humility is a noble pursuit. It is something worth pursuing. It is commendable and respectful and respectable. It is a noble pursuit. It is not a doormat position. It doesn't leave you on the ground getting trampled on. But it does lead you to the ground on your knees, dependent upon and in awe of a God who is in control, who is doing something amazing and beyond our comprehension, and who loves you so much that he sent his son to make it possible for you to have a restored, redeemed, and right relationship with him. When we grasp, when we truly get, like deep down in who we are, when we get what's been done for us, the extent that God went to draw us back to him and draw us near to him, to adopt us into his family and his new creations. It compels us to approach every person we cross paths with or have the opportunity to pray for with humility in our hearts, recognizing that they're victims of the enemy and they need to be freed from captivity, not wiped out. They're not our enemies. They're simply in the same prison that we once were in. And we know that prison all too well and that should compel us to fight all the more for them and for their freedom and for truth and God's grace and mercy to overwhelm them. May we live in such a way that recognizes that our fleshly resume is lined with weaknesses and grievances against the living God. Just like those that it's easier to point a finger at. We are no different aside from Jesus saving us. But the beauty of the gospel is this. 
if we truly allow the heart of God to transform us, we will not focus on the relativity of our sin to others in this world, but rather on the opportunity for salvation for all. That's what we will focus on. Not, gosh, they're, I mean, I, even in my worst times, I was never that bad. Like, that's not even the thought. It's like, even them, God can save. Will he use me? Will he, do, do I get to be a part of this story? Or even better, how, God, can I be a part of this story? The common thread of sin in humanity testifies to the sacrifice of Jesus being available to all who would receive it as a gift, who would confess, repent, and trust in Jesus to be their Lord and Savior. And that family is amazing news. And that is the posture of our heart and our disposition when we pursue the noble cause of biblical humility. Amen. So, Father, I thank you for this time. God, I thank you for uncomfortable truths. I thank you for the ways in which your word challenges us to be more like Christ to be better representatives of you. And God, I thank you and praise you that I don't have to figure it out on my own, that you have given us the power of your Holy Spirit to be able to live this way, and you've given us a family, a community to walk this out within. So Father, I pray for myself and my brothers and sisters both in this room and at home right now, God, that you would work on our hearts, that you would help to reveal things that we need to repent of, and God, that you would lead us into truth and transformation in our lives. God, would you make us a people who can approach this world with humility, serving with a heart of persuasion, recruiting Jesus followers everywhere that we would go. And God, would you make it ever on our mind the people that are struggling with sin, that are far from God, are in the same prison which once held us captive. Would you help us to show them your grace and your mercy so that they can experience freedom in the name of Jesus? So we thank you for this word. We pray that you would cause us to be more like you because of it. In Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen. Let's stand to our feet.